you guys have your Bibles, please open up to Colossians chapter 1. It'll be our third week in our Colossians series. While you guys are turning there, I want to shamelessly plug our men's retreat. If you are a man, we would love to have you at the men's retreat. I just want to share this. The men's retreat is for every man, not like the super spiritual ones that have been in Christians for a long time. For every man, 13 years old and older. Um, and we would love to have you go. And I would just encourage you, I had to get two days off of work, a total of 48 hours off of work to go, and the whole retreat's only 40 hours long, so I don't know what your excuses are, but um, they're not going to work. <laughs> so come to the men's retreat. Also, um, I'm excited about this 10 a.m. service. Are you guys? Yes. It's good to see all you guys at the same time. If you guys have noticed, we've made some changes. Um, we're calling this phase one of a couple of different phases. And one of the things I want to call your attention to is that we're still trying to raise a little bit of money above and beyond our tithes and offerings. So if you would like to give towards phase two, um, which includes um, some different signs and I'm not sure, some carpets, some awesome things. And um, so if you'd like to see that happen and support our team that's working on that, we would love to have you guys um, be generous if you would. Um, let me pray and then we'll dig into Colossians. Heavenly Father. We just thank you for this place to meet. We just declare that we in no way deserve this. We in no way deserve um, the freedom that we have. We in no way deserve this meeting space. We in no way deserve such great friendship that we can find here. And in, in all of the things, the coffee and these pads on our seats, we just don't want to miss that this morning. And we want to say thank you. And we want to just open up your word, God, and we want to hear from you because we want to we want to live the way you want us to live. We, we just recognize how much you love us and we don't want to waste one ounce of that. We want to be filled with your love. We want to be pouring out to others the love that we've received from you. So I pray that you just do a work this morning in Jesus name. Amen. So Colossians is an awesome letter, and basically one of the things that's cool about this letter of Colossians is Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was a missionary in the first century, went all over the place in their known world telling people about Jesus. And Colossians, in Colossae, is this church, this city, and this church that was formed, and Paul had never even been there. This guy Epaphras, who was from Colossae, went on a business trip to Ephesus, Heard the gospel there while he's on a, just an ordinary business trip. Goes back to his own city, starts telling people about what he discovered uh, through Paul. And this church gets planted. Lots of neat things are happening. They're growing in lots of ways and it's encouraging. And also, whenever you put humans together, you know where it gets? Messy. And so this church starts to face some, some problems. And so Epaphras does what every good leader should do. He, he, he's overwhelmed and he goes to get help. He goes and finds Paul, and he gives them a report about all the great things that are happening and some of the challenges that they're facing. And then Paul writes this letter back to them, although he's never been there, and that's the very letter that we're studying called Colossians, this letter of encouragement from Paul to this uh, a city that he's never been to. One of the things that he, he says that he's heard about them and that he's commending is their faith and their hope. And their love. And so he's commending them. And then in uh, verse 15, he switches to what I would call a poem or a hymn. Have you ever been 
writing a, a letter or just having a conversation and then all of a sudden feel the need to just break out in a poem? <laughs> me, me neither. But that's what Paul does here in Colossians chapter 1. It's kind of interesting. We're going to study that today. And it goes like this, beginning in verse 15. He says, He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent for in him. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. It's a lot more catchy in the original Greek as a poem, but a lot of uh, scholars wonder if possibly this poem might have been a hymn that was circulating in the first century. The, the only issue that you would have with that is they've been unable to un uh, uncover any, any, any hymn, such hymn, right? We haven't found a hymn like that, so it's also possible that Paul is just writing this hymn to this Colossian church. But I think what you'll find is there's only four chapters in this letter, and what he does is he, he opens up with a greeting He's going to challenge them a little bit. On, he's going to encourage them on the things that they're doing well and ask them to continue to do those. And he's also going to confront some false teaching that they're, they're making, right? And so he begins this not by addressing the false teaching, but by making a declaration of what's true. If you guys, uh, there's a couple of interesting things that I've found in kind of marketing and, and, and business. And one, I heard this story about Toll House Cookies. Toll House Cookies, when they, when they get their employees, the first week, they, they tell them right up front, you guys can eat as many cookies as you want. That seems like that could be a problem, right? Like you just eat as many cookies as you want. You're working on the line. You just eat as many cookies as you want. What they found is after about week one or week two, they're so sick of cookies, they never steal any cookies. <laughs> and so it's kind of a smart plan, right? Likewise, the banks back in the day when they were, and I think still today, when they're teaching um, their employees how to recognize counterfeit money, they don't show them all kinds of counterfeits. They don't show them all the latest and greatest counterfeits. What they do is their part of their training is just to hold money in their hands, to feel what it feels like, to smell it. And they just, they just become so familiar with the real thing that if you were to hand them something fake, they would be able to tell right away. I think that that's kind of what Paul's doing here, is he's saying, I can't cover necessarily all of the, 
false teaching that you might encounter, but I want you to be so familiar with what's true, with what's true about our God, that you would recognize any falsity right away. And so that's really what I believe this hymn is about. It's a declaration or a creed about what's true. And there's plenty of things in here that we can look at, and we're going to look at a few of them today in our notes. And number one is this. What Paul says about our God to these Colossian people that he's never met, they probably, most of them, come from a pagan or Gentile background, and so they're, they're learning these things for the first time. And what he says is something brilliant. He says, Jesus is and always was fully God. And, I would add, always will be. Jesus is and always was fully God. In other words, Jesus is eternally God. Every other religion that I know of, even today, will not affirm that declaration. I think of our friends that are Jehovah's Witnesses, right? They believe that God was created first. Jesus was created first, and then he was a part of creation. The Mormon religion teaches that as well. Many religions that I know of, the only religion that affirms that Jesus Christ was always eternally God is Christianity. And so, so Paul talks about that first. Jesus is and always was fully God. Now this text has been tweaked a little bit throughout time. And some people, because it, it, it uses this phrase, it says he was the firstborn. When it says he was the firstborn, some, some, some scholars have said, well, if he was the firstborn, then doesn't that affirm that he was, Jesus was born first? and then was a part of creation. And as a matter of fact, this is as old as the 4th century. There was an early church father named Arius who became a heretic because he's taught that Christ was created first and then was a part of making creation. That's where the, part of where the Nicene Creed came from. And the Nicene Creed was an early church creed that, that affirmed certain things, and this is how the Nicene Creed puts it. Eternally begotten of the father that jesus is eternally begotten of the father begotten means not made not created begotten is different than made or created and so they're saying he is eternally begotten he's always existed and yet he became a human in a point in time when we say firstborn we're not talking about him being born or created and if you look in the, the, the Old Testament, you'll find affirmation for examples of this. What does it mean to be firstborn? When the Bible talks about being firstborn, it is not talking necessarily about being born like a human born first. Exodus 4.22 teaches like this. Then you, he's talking to Israel, then you shall say, or he's talking to Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh. You guys remember the story about Moses and Pharaoh? The kids were up here, they would teach you the song. It goes, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, whoa, whoa, let my people go. While he's in this conversation with Pharaoh, God says, hey, go tell this to, 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 to Pharaoh, Moses. Then you'll just say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. He says, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, if you know history, you know this. Israel is not the first people on earth, was it? 
Israel wasn't even the first nation that God dwelt amongst. But there was some, they were the chosen people. Israel was the chosen people. They weren't first born in the sense that they were first. It means something different, and we'll talk about that in a second. To be first born is different. In Psalm 89, 27, is talking to David in a messianic way about the Messiah. The Jewish people believed that there would someday be this savior and king called the Messiah. And it's referencing this in David's words. It says, and I will make him, the Messiah, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so when we say firstborn, what we're talking about is this ancient attribution to being preeminent. To being preeminent. And in fact, Paul makes sure that we don't misguide this because he uses that language in Colossians. He says he's firstborn and he's preeminent. Not firstborn like first human born, that was Adam. But the Messiah was preeminent. And he says it like this, he goes, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What does it mean that Jesus is preeminent? The, the Greek word here that's translated preeminent is proto. It's where we in English get the word prototype, right? The first example, he's the prototype. He's what it's supposed to look like. How do we... What is, what is Paul trying to teach us? He's trying to teach us this very simple thing, that Jesus, Jesus should be the center of our world, that Jesus should be the center of our worldview, that, that Jesus should be the center of our life, that Jesus should be the center of our family, that Jesus should be the center of our community, that Jesus is supposed to be preeminent center of, most important amongst. Do you hold... Jesus in the highest esteem, higher than anything else in your life. That's what he's saying. That Jesus is and always was fully God, that he is preeminent. And letter A in your notes is this. What he teaches is that he is actively involved in creation. Jesus is actively involved in creation. He wasn't created first and then actively involved. He always existed and he was actively involved in creation. And if you read through Genesis 1 through 3, you'll see that whenever it talks about this this God creating, it always uses the terminology of we. There's a we. There's an us to this God. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you're Jewish, or if you've heard of the Jewish prayer from Deuteronomy 6 called the Shema, it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's it's, it's uh, Adonai is Ichad. The Lord is one. The word Ichad m- means one in unity, not one in singleness. One in unity. All throughout the Bible we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit type language. Jesus is actively involved as the Son in creation is what Paul's teaching. And then he says, let it be that he became fully human to redeem his creation. He became fully human, so God is fully God, Jesus is fully God, and he became fully human to redeem his creation. And I love how Paul says it, he says, all the fullness was pleased to dwell in him. All the fullness was pleased to dwell in him. It reminds me of the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 12 says it like this, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You guys think Jesus enjoyed the cross? No, 
He endured the cross, but there was joy in it. For the joy that was set before him, and so all the fullness was pleased, joyful. He was joyful to become a human. He was joyful to go to the cross. Why? Because his focus was on redeeming his creation. And then letter C is this, that he is able to present you blameless upon his return. In other words, he alone is able. He alone is able to present you blameless upon Four twelve says this, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Paul's writing this theological letter, teaching them in this very poetic way that gets kind of wordy, and he's saying this simple gospel message that Jesus, who always was, who always existed, was fully God, became fully man with a purpose, and that purpose he was joyful in because it was the redemption of us. And what that looks like is that he is able to redeem us. And when we are presented to God, we will pre- be presented blameless, without guilt, without sin. Isn't that a beautiful thing? This is the foundation theologically of the gospel. And so Paul pours this out in this very cool poem. And then number two, he says this. That God is sovereign. That God is sovereign. We're going to be talking about some theology today. I hope that doesn't bother you too much or bore you too much. It's pretty exciting, actual stuff. That God is sovereign. What does it mean that God is sovereign? What it means that God is sovereign, it means this. It means that there is nothing that he is not able to be in control of. There's nothing outside of his ability to control. That's orthodoxy. We believe that God is sovereign, that there is nothing that is outside of his ability to control. Now, within the church, within orthodoxy, we have some different opinion of what, how exactly this works. Some people have what's called meticulous sovereign. Meticulous sovereignty means this. It means that God literally is in control, is controlling every dust particle that floats, every single thing, every meticulous thing that happens, God is, is making happen. That's meticulous sovereignty. I think at least means this, and he like this in the letter. Letter A is this, that he holds the universe together. He holds the universe together. That Jesus, in Jesus, in God, he holds the universe together. And it says it like this, it says, in him all things hold together. The word all things in Greek is panta. It means literally every single thing. Panta is the total, the totalness. He holds together. The other view, which I hold, other than meticulous sovereignty, is this. I call it mysterious sovereignty. Mysterious sovereignty states that though God doesn't cause everything that happens, I don't believe that God causes evil things to happen. I don't believe God gives people cancer. I don't believe that God, I think, I think some things happen that God doesn't orchestrate. And yet mis- the mysterious thing is that although all these things are happening, although he allows his creation to have some control, we're allowed to make choices. Sometimes, we, oftentimes we make bad choices. And somehow mysteriously, with all of that choice, it never gets outside of his ability to control. He's always in control. How does he do that? 
That's why it's called mysterious sovereignty. But the big picture that we should all understand is that God is sovereign. Nothing is outside of his ability to control. He holds the universe together somehow. Letter B is this. He holds the church in his arms, he teaches. He's the head of the church. He holds the church in his arms. So how then should we live? I would say like this. As a church, Remembrance Community Church, be thankful to joyfully surrender all in order to follow Jesus. Because he's our head. He's our leader. Who's the leader of this church? Good thing. Don't say me. Right? We got Jesus. There's very many levels uh, before you get to me. And Jesus is the head of this church. So we joyfully surrender and follow Jesus. And then let her see that he holds the future in his hands. Because Paul says he is able to present you. He's able to present you blameless. He's able. This is a promise of a future hope and home. He, he's, he reminds him, you have, a, you have the promise of a future hope and a home with this Jesus. He is able. And he holds the future in his hands. You might say it like this, and this might be all that you get out of this morning, and I'd be okay with that. Learn this phrase. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. Reuben, when he was getting baptized last week, made a great statement. He said, I don't have all of the answers, but I want to share with you what I do know. I know who my God is. We don't know all the things that are going to happen. We don't know what the future holds. But Paul's reminding you, just know who holds the future. That's enough. That's what our faith and our hope is founded upon. And then in your notes, the third thing that we learn, we learn that, that, that Jesus is, always was, and always will be fully God. That God is sovereign. And then the beautiful thing is this. That Jesus is present in the process. Jesus is present in the process. I think some people, when they think about Christianity, when they think about their life, and they think about God and how he is involved with that, I think a lot of people feel like this. One day, when I get to heaven, Jesus will be waiting for me there. You guys ever have that thought? This picture, when we get to heaven, Jesus will be waiting for us there. I think there's some truth in that. He will be there. But I would just reframe that for you. He's not waiting for you there. He's here with us now. He's going to walk with you every step of the way. He's going to walk you in. He won't be waiting for you when. He's going to cross the line with you. Matter of fact, he's the only way you're going to get across that line. And so, so Jesus is present in the process. And here's a great Bible verse every Christian should know. Philippians 1.6. Write it down. Memorize it. Philippians 1.6. And I am confident of this, or I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in me is faithful, will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That means he's present in the process. That means last week we learned, Paul uses this frame, that, that when Jesus redeems us, we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. 
And, and theologically, this is what happens. You are transferred in an instance. You repent, you give your life to Jesus instantly. You're, you, it says last week we have the full inheritance once we do that. It's instant. We're transferred to the kingdom of light. And then we're transformed over a lifetime. You're transferred in an instance, and you're transformed over a lifetime is the framework that we're getting here in Colossians. And so Jesus is present in the process. He is able to finish what he started. And so he gives us three things that he wants us to focus on as we journey, as we, as we live in process. He says, continue to live by faith. Continue to live by faith. I've heard of your faith. Continue to live by faith, guys. That's saying, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. My, my faith is in who God is, not in what might or might not happen. Continue to live by faith. You might say it like this. Immature Christians have a foundation that's based on feelings. In other words, it looks like this. When you're, when you're a brand new Christian or when you're an immature Christian, because some people don't grow up as fast as others, right? I know some 30-year-olds who are super immature, and I've met some 13-year-olds that are more mature than me, right? And I know some 42-year-olds who are right here who are immature than both of those people, right? And so you c- it takes a lifetime to grow up, but immature Christians haven't grown up. They live by their feelings. But w- as you get more mature, you choose to live by faith. You choose to lo- live by what you know. You choose to put your faith in what you know and not just how you feel. Because your feelings can fail you, but our God will never fail us. Amen? And so when we, when we get more mature, he's saying continue to live by faith. Don't, don't follow your feelings. Don't follow your heart. Your heart will lead you astray. Follow Jesus. Follow what you know. Follow what you know. Stand on what you know. If your faith is in Jesus who was and is and is to come, then live for his kingdom like you've been transferred in place and he's continuing to make you become a disciple one step at a time. You're in this process of continuing to grow. That's what it looks like to live by faith. You might say it like this. Just be consistent with the basics. Last week we talked a little bit about this idea that being faithful isn't about doing big things. When you're immature, you pray prayers like this. God, let me know your will. And what you're thinking about in your head is that someday there's going to be this big picture will, like this big plan, this grand plan. I'm going to be this or I'm going to be that. And there's just, there's just like this one will that God has for this one plan that he has for you. But when you're more mature, you realize, husbands, when you get up in the morning, you should go like this. Go, God, help me do your will today. And then if you step over the laundry that you took off and throw there and you make your wife pick that up, you just miss God's will. Pick up your laundry and throw in the hamper. That's God's will for your life. Just do a lot of, do the right thing. Do the simple right thing. Do what's the next right thing, right? So living by faith. Just be faithful and do the simple things. Do Just be faithful and you trust God with the results. You be faithful in the little things and you trust God somehow to use all of that for his glory. If God calls you to do big things, then may you have the courage to do them. But also, don't miss the little things every day that God's calling you to because they feel too small. 
God's in the small details. So he says, continue to live by faith. And then he said, and we'll have the worship team come back up. And then he says, and never give up hope. Don't put your hope in other things, he says. Let Jesus alone be preeminent in your life. The, 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 the author of one of my favorite hymns, uh, Be Thou of My Vision, says it like this. First in my heart. Would you declare that? Is Jesus first in your heart? Is he preeminent in your heart? Does he have the highest seat in your heart? Because when we say Jesus is king, we're saying he has the highest seat. He is in, he's on the throne. He's in charge. And not me. And we never give up hope. We put our hope fully in Jesus, because he's made a promise, this, 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 this Colossians passage tells us who God is. Tells us what God has done. He's with joy set before him. He's endured the cross, removing our sins. It tells us what he's done, and it tells us what our future promise is. He, he makes promises to us that he is able to keep you through the process and to take you home. It's a beautiful hymn. It's a beautiful passage. So continue to live by faith. Never give up hope. And then lastly, that love is the key ingredient. That love is the key ingredient. So here's some prep thoughts for worship. You might ask these questions. We'll have our prayer team here at the side. They'll be ready to pray for you. Maybe you might... Um, Today might be the day you want to come up and just get prayed for. I would say this. Don't wait until your life is a complete train wreck to get prayed for. Don't wait until everything's a mess till you start building key relationships. Build relationships before you need them. Get prayed for because it's available. Like, don't assume that whoever walks forward like, Oh, wow, I wonder what really bad is happening in their life. That shouldn't be the culture that we have. It should be like, wow, there's no line for that. Like, you go to Magic Mountain, and, like, there's no ride on your favorite ride. Like, you're going to go on it, like, 10 or 15 times. I want to see some of you guys, like, getting in line for prayer, and then, like, what, no one's in line? I'm going to get prayed for again today. That's what we want to see happen in our worship time. But as we're prepping, let me ask you a couple questions to kind of chew on as we prep for worship. What does it look like this week for you to continue to live by faith? What does it look like this week for you to continue to live by faith? Or, or maybe this one. Where are you struggling to hold fast to the hope of the gospel? Where are you struggling to have hope? Where are you unsettled? Where do you need to choose to be thankful rather than wait to feel thankful? Or maybe even just this, in what area of your life do you need to choose? I need to choose to, even though I don't feel like it. Like I said, there's going to be people who want to pray for you, but I want to pray for you guys right now, and then we'll go right into worship. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage that Paul writes, very poetic and hymnal, but just very foundational we thank you that that we know the truth about our god because you've chosen to make yourself known to us we thank you that you've always existed we we can't wrap our heads around that 
So we just believe it by faith. We don't understand. We can't fathom that. And yet we know it's true. And, and we, we thank you that when you created us, you loved us. You created us and you said it was, we were good. And you loved us. And then all the way through, even from Adam and Eve, as soon as they sinned, you worked out a plan to redeem them. You covered them. You went and found them when they were hiding from you. You've, gone and, you've, come, and hi- you've come and found us when we were hiding from you. And you've covered us. You've covered our nakedness. You've covered our shame. And you want to walk with us. You, you reconciled us to have a relationship with you. And, and there was joy in that for you because you love us. May we just sit in your love this morning. May we remember the basics. That we're loved by God. And may that just stir in us a love for each other. And may that just grow someday, maybe a little bit more this morning, to where we would even love those who don't love us, just like you loved us before we loved you. So I pray that you would do a work in our hearts this morning as we focus on who you are and what you've done and to all that you've promised. Amen.